0: What I can say right now is I think as the more fiscal policies occur, that's going to drive parts of the economy and the market. And so I feel very optimistic about where we're, where we're headed right now. I'm not in the business of predicting, but I think a takeaway from our discussion today, because we've actually have gone and are going through a cycle. This asset class can be an all weather asset
1: class. That was Ian Fowler, co-head of Global Private Finance at Bearings. and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number two of season four of Streaming Income. We are excited to bring you a jam-packed season in the coming months, complete with in-depth conversations on asset classes like EM Debt, High Yield, Private Credit, Real Estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My guest today is Ian Fowler. Ian is co-head of Baring's Global Private Finance and head of the North American business. He serves on the group's investment committees across North America, Europe, and Asia Pacific, and also serves as the president of Bering's BDC a publicly traded business development company. Barings Global Private Finance was recently ranked as the number two most active lender to private equity-backed companies, and that's both in the U.S. and in Europe, according to third quarter 2020 data from PitchBook and MidCap Monitor, respectively. The group has invested more than $30 billion into the middle market over the course of its 25-year history, including more than $7 billion invested in 2020 alone. In the conversation, we discussed the North American private credit market with a specific focus on how the asset class has weathered the COVID storm to date and the strategies that Ian and team have implemented to navigate this period, including portfolio diversification and avoiding so-called fad industries. We also discussed how private credit is stacking up today versus the broadly syndicated loan market and what the next vintage of private middle market loans may look like. And finally, we talked about what investors may want to pay attention to over the next 12 to 24 months in this space. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Ian Fowler. All right, Ian Fowler, welcome back to Streaming Income. Thank you, Greg. Excited to have you here. You know, um, you are becoming close to a regular on this show. I was actually going back and looking at uh, how many times you've been on this show before. And I think this is time number five. So you are actually um, tied for the second most appearances with uh, Martin Horn, our head of public fixed income. I don't know how that stat strikes you.
0: Um, well, um, I guess at what threshold will I start getting paid for being on this? Show?
1: <laughs> well, I'm about 50 episodes in. I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen any sign of that yet, but uh, okay. I'll keep you posted. Um, anyhow, so here we are. I can't believe I'm saying it, but we're, you know, depending on when you, uh, start the clock, we're one year into this COVID crisis. Um, and I know, you know, I've talked to you, I've talked to John Bach and Adam Wheeler and others, and we've had various discussions along the way. Um, but tell me, you know, just from your perspective, as you think back on the past year, what has that been like for the team, uh, investing in the private credit market and for you personally?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, you said a year, but, uh, in some respects, right. it, It feels like a lifetime. Um, but you know, I, I guess, um, well, first of all, I, I would say it's, it's obviously an experience like unlike anything I have ever had to go through in, in three decades, uh, in this asset class. And I, I think uh, your question's a good one. I think it's good to look at this episodic event and, and break it down between the human side and, and the business side and, you know, I, I recall in March saying to our investment team around the globe that, you know, my experience has been every recession is different in the in the catalyst of what what causes it, but uh, what is common they all have a beginning and ultimately an end, but it's the middle that is really unpredictable and and therefore, you know, the geometry of that recovery is going to be unique and and the key is uh, when you're investing is figuring out um, what that recovery is going to be uh, what it's going to look like. And if it doesn't uh, end up being what you think it is, uh, making sure that you're focused on enough scenarios, downside scenarios, upside scenarios, that you're protected on the upside or or downside. Um, But, you know, for those individuals, and and this was on the human side uh, for the team, especially some of the junior folks on the team that have never experienced a, a recession, you know, they've been uh, working in the, one of the longest running bull markets. You know, I told them this is going to challenge you, it's going to make you uncomfortable, um, but yet it's going to be a good experience for them and for their career. Um, and so, embrace it as uh, part of an adventure.
1: Yeah. Well, the team has certainly been busy, uh, you know, really busy. I, m- I mentioned actually in the intro. Uh, that uh, Barings was ranked uh, number two in terms of most uh, active lender uh, to private equity, both in the U.S. and in Europe, uh, as of the late, latest data, which I think is Q3 2020. So the team's been really busy. Um, I'm, I, I'm honestly a little bit surprised to hear you know, just how busy things have been throughout this period. So tell me a little bit about that and why there has been so much activity.
0: Well, again, you know that that's the, uh, as I said, right, it's the middle part that uh, of a recession that it, it's it, it's unique and and this certainly has been a unique time and it and it surprised me um, dramatically and and just taking a step back and thinking about how our our market works and how much relationships is so important in our world. Um, the fact that we're all remote and working remote, you you would think that um, there's no way our industry, our asset class, could be busy because it'd be so challenging to mm-hmm. to get anything done. And I think it's amazing uh, that uh, our business has figured out whether it's sponsors, management teams, other lenders that we work with, you know we've figured out a way to navigate this with this physical separation. And actually, in some ways, we've been more effective in our business, Uh, and and we really have been able to overcome the absence of uh, of physical connection. Um, And and like you said, um, the fact that we have become so busy, and this market rebounded so quickly in the third quarter and fourth quarter, really really shocked us. And I would say that this recession, unlike others, That I've seen is that when you have a recession, pretty much all businesses and industries are going to be impacted uh, by this cyclicality of of that recession. But this this pandemic has been far more targeted and specific, Mm -hmm. you know, initially through lockdowns and shelter in place uh, from a geographic standpoint. um, But uh, and it definitely in certain industries, it it, it was a destabilizer Mm -hmm. uh, like consumer facing industries um, but fortunately for our platform, um, that's an area that we typically avoid or underweight. So we were we were really fortunate because our portfolio was in such good shape and as the market returned, we were well positioned to capitalize on on that and take advantage of it. And in fact, we were even taking advantage of opportunities in april and and May and June, uh, which were, Excellent opportunities. Well, a lot of other managers were on their heels, dealing with internal issues, whether it was portfolio issues or uh, mismanaging the right side of their balance sheet, and having to raise additional dilutive capital because they couldn't meet funding needs. You know, we were really well positioned to take advantage of some great companies that came to market uh, where spreads had widened two to three hundred basis points and leverage had dropped you know, a a turn or two. Um, But like you said, um, third quarter and fourth quarter, really in terms of volume, have been record uh, number of deals for us.
1: So let's talk about that, you know, cyclicality of industries point, because I think that's a really important one. And, you know, you and I have had this discussion before um, where I think you've said that uh, you and the team avoid, you know, so-called fad industries. So I want to hear what you would consider a fad industry. And, you know, we had that conversation, of course, before COVID and and before, um, I guess, this latest part of the cycle. Um, But it's very different when you're actually going through a cycle um, and some of these industries are really starting to suffer. So how how does the team think about that industry exposure broadly And, and, and especially from a through the cycle investment strategy?
0: Yes yeah, so a good question i first of all i, I think that um, like you said this is something that we we have always viewed certain industries in certain ways and I think that gets to a a larger discussion at some point around discipline um, and and making sure that you remain disciplined and and we did remain disciplined in terms of the industries that were comfortable investing in and those that were not. Um, not saying that they aren't bad industries, just saying that when it comes to private credit and illiquid assets and your inability to trade in and out of industries depending on what's happening in that industry, it can be very challenging unless you know that industry syncs up perfectly with the middle market and your ability to get in and out of transactions so just taking a look at the industries that we we avoid, you know we generally avoid you know consumer facing businesses because at the end of the day, it's just really difficult to underwrite consumer trends and preferences, particularly in more discretionary segments. So, think of restaurants and retail, where you know different fads trends can change the performance of those companies. Um, and then you've got others that maybe are a little less discretionary, but still discretionary, like gyms. Uh, and so, any kind of retail uh, element. Is is just something we we typically avoid because it's just tough to underwrite where that business is headed uh, based on on fads and choices that consumers make. So um, we've always been disciplined around these industries. I will say healthcare is another one, uh, more in terms of, and this is really specific to North America. We definitely do healthcare around the globe, but in the North American market specifically. In the U.S., when it comes to Medicare and Medicaid, you have um, stroke of the pen risk, so we we stay away from those. We did have some dental management practices in our business that were impacted in COVID uh, because of shelter in place and lockdowns. Uh, But obviously, those are businesses that are not going to go away, and and you know the business model is not impaired. Some of the restaurants and retail, and you can see it in, in the larger cap side they're impaired business models and they're actually going out of business.
1: Yeah. 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 And it's I'm having some interesting conversations there with our real estate team uh, lately as well. But yeah, point taken on the, on the, on the dentist side, I think there's going to be a lot of overdue uh, dentist appointments <laughs> coming out of, coming out of this. And maybe barbers too, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Fortunately, we're doing this audio only. Um, you know, with, Another thing that I've heard you and the team talk quite a bit about is um the backing of our parent company. And I want to talk a little bit about that, just understanding how that has impacted the the dynamic. So of course, for our listeners who don't know, uh Bearings is a subsidiary of Mass Mutual. We don't often talk about Mass Mutual necessarily by name on podcasts like this. Um because we're two separate entities, but um, the reality is that uh, they're our parent company, they're our largest client, there's a great partnership there. Um, but it, it does, you know, have impacts uh, in terms of uh, the flexibility um, for, that it gives Ian and team. So talk a little bit about that and just how that's actually played out throughout this whole COVID crisis.
0: Yeah, so, you know, first of all, and, and people may not be aware of this, but Mass Mutual has... Itself, For its its own uh, general investment account has had exposure to this asset class for for over 50 years before bearings Uh, and and they see the benefit of of this asset class the the fact that it's um, less volatile it's it's not as uh, correlated to other financial assets so from a diversification standpoint from a risk return profile. Uh, it, it can be e- extremely attractive, and it's a core component of their portfolio. Obviously, in certain parts of the market, they will uh, increase or, or decrease exposure, but it, it doesn't go away. So, you know, first of all, I would say having a parent like that that gets and appreciates the, the value of this asset class as a core component of a portfolio is is just a great thing to have. Um, and because of that, we, we manage their investments in this asset class on a discretionary basis. And so um, I guess at a philosophical standpoint, it, it changes uh, the way we approach investments from pretty much any other manager out there. Because as we look at it, as we think about uh, our, our business and our investment style, we truly are a principal investor embedded in an asset manager because 20 to 30 percent of every dollar that we invest is our own capital and and so because that's the case we are highly focused on capital preservation and if you're going to invest in senior debt that has to be the number one goal is capital preservation because unlike private equity if, if you take a loss it's not easy to overcome that loss with other investments to make up for it. Um, and, and so as we look at our asset selection, as we look at our underwriting, our portfolio construction, that is a common thread, uh, you know, in terms of capital preservation. And so you hear us talk about boring is beautiful. Well, you know, that doesn't mean we don't take advantage of opportunities and, and we do take advantage of opportunities, but it means that we are very disciplined. We are not chasing risk. Uh, we're very focused on making sure that whatever dollars we put out the door we we have a really good uh, chance of uh, getting those dollars back and And so at a high level, from a philosophical perspective uh that resonates through our business so that that I think uh, for any of our partners, our third party capital, um, knowing that they are in one hundred percent alignment with us. Has to be very comforting, and so we have a very strong balance sheet uh, in our in our firm. We have a blue chip parent that has allowed us to take advantage of um, opportunities last spring. Uh, so we were unlike a lot of other managers in this space that you know actually had uh, funding issues, and and we very aware of some managers that needed uh, rescue capital that they couldn't make good on revolver draws or couldn't make good on incrementals to fund acquisitions and or capital was so tight that three months earlier they could write a check for three or four hundred million but in march they were down to 25 million and and we never changed i mean we know we were out there with the same amount of money that we always had and that's because we come from uh, a platform that is large and diversified, and 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 has the the strength of uh, uh, of that uh, sponsorship through through Mass Mutual. And uh, like I said, we took advantage of some really unique and attractive opportunities. And I also had a lot of calls from sponsors uh, during COVID that were saying, you know what, we realized we are way too concentrated with one manager, and they're having funding issues, and so we need to figure out how to do a lot more business with you and so you know one of the reasons i think we've been so busy in this uh, third and fourth quarter is our the way we came out and and acted through covid really allowed us to take market share
1: yeah and and the those are all great points and and the last question i want to ask you on this topic is if you think about everything we've talked about so kind of avoiding bad industries the the backing of our parent company some of the Diversification across um, different investment vehicles. Um, I, I imagine a lot of that flexibility and stability is what led to uh, some of the market share gains uh, over the course of this period. Um, but let me just ask you how does that benefit, uh, you know, Bearings clients ultimately? It's like great, great for Bearings to be, you know, rising up the league tables and all that kind of stuff. But what's the benefit for our clients?
0: Yeah, you know, that's well. Obviously, that's important, and because, like I said, we're a client too, right? It's our money as well. So that that's where the alignment comes in. And I was pretty clear with our team as as we were call it emerging out of COVID in the in the spring and early summer, and and as we saw some deals, uh, you know, I was very clear that we're not going to just back up the truck and. And I think it's really important first to understand that uh, the volume of deals out there, yes, it's enormous, but the only deals that are getting financed out there in, in the market today are, are companies that either were fairly resistant to the impact of, of COVID uh, because of the industry that they were in, uh, or some actually companies were able to benefit uh from, from COVID. Uh, and and have actually accelerated growth um, because of COVID. So um, I want to be crystal clear on this, that, yes, the volume's been up. We've put record dollars to work. But these are incredible businesses that are getting financed right now. And so when you when you think about um, how it benefits the LPs, we're delivering what we said we would in terms of performance, our portfolio um had very little to no exposure to those consumer facing industries that we discussed. And so our portfolio performed extremely well. We've been generating stable income like we said we would to our investors. And then we've been putting money to work, which our investors uh want. And and obviously that's occurred in this, you know, third and fourth uh quarter. And I think you can use and I don't want to go into a lot of detail. I know that uh, uh Mr. Bach has uh done a podcast on our on our bdc but you can use the bdc as a a benchmark Mm -hmm. uh, for our our platform which is appropriate and and you know what what i would say and this actually makes me really proud of of our team is that when we took over the uh, triangle portfolio and and it was basically all cash there was another party that actually bought all the assets that triangle managed we were able to Invest all that capital over two years. You know, we invested in some liquid assets and then rotated out. But we built a uh, middle market origination portfolio and constructed it in the last two years of a cycle when typically the market is at its frothiness, mm-hmm. and that's the time you're going to stub your toes. But we maintained discipline. We built that portfolio, and we did it, and had no non accruals. And to me, that demonstrates the execution and discipline of our of our platform in a very challenging time.
1: Yeah. For our listeners, you can go back and listen to that episode. It was a couple months back with John Bach, where we talked quite a bit about um, BDCs and the opportunity there and, and actually different ways for investors to invest in private credit. Uh, there's all sorts of options, commingled, private funds, public BDCs, private BDCs. So we tried to shed a little bit of light on that. And Ian's, of course, referring to Barings BDC, uh, which I believe you're the president of, Ian, if I'm not mistaken. Um, You you are correct. Okay, well, uh, so thank you for all that. That's great perspective on kind of where we've been and I would say some of the philosophical approach of the team. So I think that is uh, really helpful uh, let's look forward now. So where do we go from here? Uh, tell me what you're seeing out there today in terms of opportunities, you know, maybe what the next vintage could look like, you know, especially relative to traditional uh, expectations for what, what private credit yields look like, et cetera.
0: Well, I, I think, first of all, I just want to uh, state that whenever it comes to the future and, and uh crystal balls and things of that nature. I I think you got to be very careful uh, because the, the truth is I don't think any of us know exactly where we're going to go from here. But what I can say right now is the activity that occurred in, in late 2020 uh, has spilled over into 2021. We're very active uh, and very attractive deal flow. Um, I, I I think as the, you know, the, more fiscal policies uh, occur that's going to that's going to you know drive parts of the economy and the market and so i i feel very um optimistic uh, about where we're we're headed right now uh and i think probably from an LBO perspective uh right now with all this support and capital infusion into the economy I think that's going to be very helpful in terms of driving activity. Likely, at some point, we're going to be thinking more about the potential tax consequences of all this with with larger deficits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that, but also, I think that initially will create activity as people are looking to take money off the table. So, um, I'm not in the business of uh, predicting, but um, you know, I think what I can say, and I think a takeaway from our discussion today because we've actually have gone and are going through a cycle this asset class can be an all-weather asset class mm-hmm. um and and so i feel very confident that we can continue to put money to work in good quality companies and meet the expectations of our investors
1: yeah okay that's that's helpful context and that's i think that's an important point just because this asset class has grown so much you know i've watched it evolved uh, just in my time over the last kind of seven years or so at this firm and seen, you know, not only how the team uh, has grown, but also the asset class. Uh, I know that the bearings team has been investing uh, for 25 years plus in this space and mass mutual for, for longer. But um, I think there was some questions out there as to how this asset class would do kind of, you know, through the next cycle. And I think some of the context that you just gave is. know starting to provide some some of that answer um you know maybe as we just think about uh how private credit is stacking up versus the broadly syndicated loan market i know people talk about illiquidity premiums and, and compare the two asset classes so for investors out there who are who are looking at both of these spaces what's your latest thinking there
0: well i i can tell you it's it's uh it's been a little volatile First of all, as, as you know, and as we've discussed, private debt is just, it, because it's a liquid, it's just not as volatile as the liquid market. So, as you think about the illiquidity premium, and that's something that uh, we we always focus on uh, when we're pricing our deals, regardless of where we are in, in the uh, cycle. Uh, so, whenever a deal comes to our investment committee, uh, we're always looking at the liquid comps to make sure that we're thinking. Uh, correctly about pricing risk and and structure um, w- with respect to returns, uh, but as you as you look specifically at the illiquidity premium, obviously when when spreads widened uh, in the liquid market uh, early in in COVID, that that premium basically uh, disappeared, evaporated. Uh, but as as the the market has recovered, that illiquidity premium has. Uh, rebounded, and so if you were to look at uh, just market benchmarks with the Credit Suisse uh, index and Refinitive, uh, what we actually saw, if you go back to October, we we saw illiquidity premium around 127 basis points, uh, but widened to about 230 ish basis points by year end. We we've always targeted two to 300 basis points uh, for our illiquidity. Um, premium and I can tell you that uh, you know we are we're closer to the three percent than the than the mm-hmm. market benchmarks mm-hmm.
1: okay um you know I know you're out there having a lot of conversations uh, of course not just with regards to uh, investing capital but uh, of course with you know speaking with bearing's clients on a regular basis what are you hearing there so I'm curious who's interested in this space right now Are you seeing any uh, new allocations, or are you see anybody pull back from the space? Different types of investors. Just curious, what you're seeing in here and there?
0: It's, it's interesting. I, I what, what I the takeaway for me as I've had conversations with with sophisticated investors that underwrote and truly understood this asset class. They they continue to invest in, in a consistent way um, throughout the cycle, and 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 again they they understand and and get that this is an asset class that really can perform well through all parts of of the market cycle um and you know you you don't necessarily need to know where where rates are going because you know we're talking about an asset class that has floating rates so um you get the benefit uh if if rates rise and if if rates don't rise we have we have floors and um and spreads will will increase and so you can think about that total yield being pretty stable the components of it can change between yields and and libor uh but but at the end of the day that that total yield is going to pay you uh, a sufficient re- return for the risk that you're taking and and so these investors get it they also understand that uh, like any other asset class early in the recovery. Uh, it can and often does provide, you know, a a slightly better uh, risk return and and they become better vintages. So um, I I think that those investors get that. There are other investors out there that are earlier stage, uh, newer to the asset class, and some of them are taking a, a wait and see approach. I understand that, but I don't think this is an asset class that you know one really needs to try to time that's not that's not what this asset class is or should be and I think as people see how this asset class performs through the cycle i I think they'll get more comfortable in terms of always having exposure and and always you know investing in that asset class throughout the cycle and 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 I guess the other thing I would point out right, and this is you know probably the most important thing, and probably what a lot of clients are thinking about. Um, they have cash. And when 80% of the world's global sovereign and, and corporate credit is trading below 2%, I mean, why wouldn't you take a portion of your capital and invest it in this asset class when you can generate yields unlevered uh, between 6 and 8% for senior debt risk?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not, not an asset class to market time. Uh, we're seeing a lot of market timing going on in, in lots of uh, parts of the market where there's some craziness happening, especially in the equity market right now and in cryptocurrencies as well. So not as much excitement here, but as you've said time and time again, boring is beautiful. And that may be continue to be a good description of, of what you're getting with this uh, asset class. Um, all right, so last question here. I know you don't like to... Look into the crystal ball, but I'm going to still ask you, you know, how do you expect the next 12 to 24 months to play out for this asset class? And, you know, from an investor's perspective, so thinking about, um, you know, a pension fund, insurance company, even a family office uh, investing into private credit, what would you be on the lookout for? You know, what types of things will help you kind of navigate the? relationship with your your manager or managers um you know what would be your thoughts there
0: so just generally speaking for the asset class i feel very optimistic and and i think this is going to be a great vintage yeah even if we do have some headwinds here um i i think i think we're in a really good spot um what i would say for investors though and this is really Uh, a a new consideration because most of the institutional capital that came into this asset class came in after the the last uh, great recession and and so um as we're going through this cycle and this recession i i think it's really important for investors to drill down on a couple things with uh when they're looking at managers you know, it's interesting. In the middle market, we have not seen a lot of distressed opportunities emerge, um, unlike the liquid market, where back in March, April, there were there were a fair amount of, of uh, distress opportunities that emerged. Um, but we know that they exist, right? There are a lot of managers out there that have exposure to uh, industries and and business models within those industries that are impaired, and they're not recovering anytime soon or at least quickly. And so one of the things that can happen in in, in the illiquid asset class is that um, it, it's really not out there. You have the ability, managers do have the ability to kick the can down the road. So I, I think what you need to do as you underwrite, not the asset class, but the manager itself is really drill down and just see if they're hiding any pain points in the portfolio mm-hmm. and are attempting to grow their way out of it uh or compartmentalize some of these these bad assets. Mm -hmm. Um so drill down into the deal level stats of the portfolio. Look at the valuation policy um to, to get at it. And you might say, well, why do I need to do that if if I'm you know investing prospectively, not you know reactively, but it all ties back to the strength of the platform. And and you need to underwrite the durability of that platform. Uh, to perform uh it needs to make money obviously for its investors it needs to make money for its its team i mean if it it can't pay the team then the team are going to leave and go somewhere else um if if they're so focused on portfolio issues you know how can they do uh with finite resources how can how can they do a great job in terms of uh you know building future portfolios Mm -hmm. and asset selection when they're you know they're working on uh, their problem children so you know uh, make sure that that's not the case they can keep the talent they can they can maintain their their strategy Um, and also understand if it's a leverage vehicle uh, those leverage providers there's a finite amount of capital for for asset managers and those Leverage providers are drilling down. They're doing that same analysis, and if they think there's an issue with that portfolio, it, it's going to it's going to result in limited leverage capital for those vehicles, um, or more controls around that capital, which could impact uh, performance. And then the last thing I would say is, and 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 this gets back to uh, discipline and and gets. And gets back to the growth in the industry and how people put money to work. We we've discussed in the past. Uh, there are managers out there that have raised these mega funds, and there's no way that you can deploy that capital in a prudent and appropriate way within a three year period without investment style shift and and moving up market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. I, I would just be very focused on the average size EBITDA business, uh, weighted average size over the last five years, and just see if there's any any shifting that's occurring, or if, or is it fairly stable? And if you see that EBITDA number declining, that means they're having difficulty competing in the market that they're in, and they've had to move down market, theoretically taking more more risk. That's something investors have to weigh whether they're comfortable with that risk. Um, if you get paid for it, it's fine. But just make sure you're getting paid for it. Yeah. Um, and if you see the EBITDA going the other direction, then you know that they they're really focused more on bigger deals, making uh, more money uh, with fees with with those bigger deals.
1: A lot of nuance and a lot to think about. Um, you know, but but a lot of really helpful nuance. I mean, I feel like every time. Uh, I speak with you. I uh, take notes voraciously and uh, come away learning at least five new things. So I think that's definitely the case today. And hopefully, our listeners uh, took away some value um, as well. I know we could uh, keep diving into the nuances of, of this all day, but uh, I think we'll we'll leave it there. Um, and I appreciate your time uh, today, Ian. I appreciate the update in terms of how you and the team are are doing. Um, and I appreciate all the insight that you've uh, given into the market. So thanks thanks for joining us. I look forward to having you back on your sixth time on the show uh, sometime in the near future.
0: I appreciate it, Greg. Thank you for having me, and I'm really very pleased that we're doing this audio and not visual because then you'd see my COVID hair. <laughs>
1: all right, Ian. Have a good day. appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode number two of season four of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.